Cause it's really hard to train hard when you have to be full pretty much all the time. And the feeling of fullness, we can all relate to feeling like I want to go take a nap or I want to sit down and I, I just, I'm full and I don't want to go train my ass off when, when I've just eaten a huge meal. Welcome to the Bar Band Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barband.com. Today, I'm talking to Adi Kazu, the founder and CEO of Working Against Gravity. Adi is one of the most trusted names in nutrition among strength and fitness athletes. And in today's episode, we dive deep on the differences in nutritional programming between men and women, what most elite athletes still get wrong about eating, and which athletes and athlete types are the toughest to program for. We also talk about how Adi's time as an elite weightlifter has influenced her work and ability to connect with athletes of all levels. Also, I want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me Adi Kazu. Adi, it's been a couple of years since we've chatted, and I've seen you in just about every capacity there is in fitness. I've seen you as an Olympic lifter. I've seen you when you were competing in the National Grid League. Remember that? Years and years ago. Now you're probably best known as the CEO and founder of Working Against Gravity. What is your elevator pitch when you describe to people what you do? Yeah, the typical answer right now, they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I do three things. I help, I do one-on-one nutrition coaching and help individuals achieve whatever nutrition goals they have. I help people become nutrition coaches if that's a career choice that they'd like to have. And I help people build nutrition businesses for themselves so that they can have um, either a side hustle or turn this into a sustainable career. I am curious, working against gravity, that is the name of your business and that's kind of the focal point around the nutritional coaching you're doing, you you do. How many clients over the past, I mean, how old is it? How many clients have you worked with over the course of that period? Yeah, we have been around for almost six years. And so like in November, it'll be six and it's currently... February, so five and a half years, I guess. Um, and we worked with over 25,000 people. That's, that's an immense number of people. That's like a, like a mid-sized Midwestern town of people. Yeah. What, kind of, what kind of spread is that as far as like men versus women, athletes, competitive athletes versus maybe, you know, just more of the weekend warriors, people just trying to make lifestyle changes? Well, how do the demographics break down there? Yes, like 70% female, 30% male. I think in general, women um, seek nutrition coaching or things like that more than men. Um, And in terms of, this might be surprising to people, but our typical person is not always somebody who's actually a competitive athlete. We do have probably 15 to 20% of people are actually trying to be competitive in some type of sport one or another and we have the craziest sports we have bobsledders and javelin throwers and spartan racers and crossfitters and weightlifters all sorts of different kinds of things uh ultra marathoners 
Ironman people, like all different kinds of sports. A lot of them are trying to be competitive. Um, I would say the average person, when I say competitive, like they're trying to qualify for something. They're not just trying to compete and enjoy the, they're trying to win things. Um, the average person on our program is somebody who loves challenging themselves and would definitely participate in local competitions or uh, do like run a marathon or do something like that. But they're not trying to be a national level athlete or make the Olympics or uh, something like that. Why do you think that more women seek out nutritional coaching than men? I, I could guess. Yeah, let's um, guess. I mean, what you you've been in this for a while. Like, what are yeah. what what are your hypotheses? My hypotheses would be one in general society and marketing and media harps a little bit harder on women to change their bodies than it does on men. I don't think it's non-existent for men, but it's just a little bit stronger for women. Like look this way, lose weight, all the marketing. When you go to the grocery store, the person on the cover of that, you know, the magazine that you see that's like lose 10 pounds in 10 days. Um, it's usually a woman who looks a certain way. And I think that's a huge part of it of diet culture has just been stronger for females in general. Society makes it that way. And then I also think that uh, women are more open to direction generally than men. I often find men um, like it's kind of like, you know, the, 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 st the stereotype of a guy doesn't want to stop and get directions. Yeah. I fulfill that stereotype. So I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's true for everybody, but I think in this case, it's a lot of people will be like, no, I've got it. I know where we're going. I don't need directions where as women are generally more open to being like, Hey, let's stop and ask somebody what, what's the path to get to where we're going. When when clients come to you and they're they're saying, "Hey, I'm training for this," or like, "This is my ultimate goal." I'm really talking about that kind of competitive sector, sector that like ten to fifteen percent. What are some of the most difficult sports when it comes to building customized dietary templates that help people stay competitive? Like, what are the toughest sports to actually do that for? I don't know that there's any sport that's tougher than another. I think weightlifting or anything where you have to make weight is mm -hmm. challenging. Um, something where how much you weigh doesn't really factor is a little bit easier because the number on the scale just doesn't carry as much significance. So I've worked with Jessica Lucero for five years and she has been attempting to make an Olympic team in weightlifting. And she's a really, really amazing weightlifter. And for her to maintain her performance and also weigh a certain amount on a specific day at a specific time, that is a little bit lighter than she probably would be normally mm -hmm. um, in any capacity is just, that's probably the most challenging. So any sport that requires some type of weigh in, especially in weightlifting or powerlifting where it's like a two hour before Anything that's a 24 hour before is a little bit easier, but something where, where it's really, you have to lose weight specifically on a specific amount. Well, you, you yourself, uh, were a competitive weightlifter for a number of years, that two hour period beforehand, you need to make weight and then you have two hours to rehydrate, refuel, whatever it is. You don't want to go too crazy because you actually have to perform. You don't want to feel like bloated and heavy and overly full. 
What are some of your favorite meals, foods, techniques to rehydrate and refuel during that weigh-in period, things that you might advise your clients on? Yeah. So it, it depends a little bit on how much weight you've lost, but uh, generally if you've lost a pretty significant amount of weight, I would, I always have some type of electrolyte afterwards or some things I, the food that I'm choosing to eat is salty and it's going to help me get water back into my system. Mm-hmm. Um, something really salty has always worked. Uh, generally something with carbohydrates, my favorite was oatmeal, oatmeal with, with some type of fruit mixed in sometimes a little bit of peanut butter, not too much fat right after just because for most people fat, it's heavy in the belly and it takes a long time to digest and just doesn't feel great. Um, and I try and eat as much as I can without eating something really, nothing really greasy or gross or like, not gross. I mean, greasy stuff is delicious sometimes, yeah. but <laughs> like, nothing really that's going to make you feel gross or like you want to take a nap afterwards. So you're not uh, just pounding in and out cheeseburgers right after. Right. I mean, some people do. Some people do. There's always exceptions to the rule. Um, and I would never recommend eating something after weigh-in that you've never eaten before training before. So often with some with athletes will test out their meal that they're going to have after weigh-in before a training session. So a lot of weightlifters will do a test session mm-hmm. where maybe they'll hit their openers the week before or they'll, they'll have like a test mock meet in training and we'll test out, you know... Jessica's a great example. She loves eating a meatball sub right after she weighs in. That's just like her thing. She loves meatball subs and she feels great. And I mean, she's has all the American records in weightlifting. So something she's doing something right for sure. Um, yeah, it's just like finding what works for you. For me, it was oatmeal, fruit, some type of drink with electrolytes. And I didn't really eat too much right after. What do you think are some of the most common misconceptions when it comes to cutting weight for strength athletes? Uh, a lot of our listener base and a lot of our readers at Barben, they're strength athletes. Maybe they're in that 10 to 15% of people who are competing, or maybe they're thinking about competing. Maybe they're not quite in that percentage, but they're, they're considering it or they're just following along with competition and they want to potentially get into that mindset. What are some things that when people come to you or the first time you're working with someone where they've when they're cutting weight, maybe they've never worked with a nutritional coach before that you think people are just getting wrong. I think the first thing that people are getting wrong is that people uh, choose the option of cutting weight to be competitive too often. So I think there's an, there's a way undervalued option of being within a weight class. Mm, Okay. I think that most people try and cut weight to be more competitive when they're not seasoned athletes or they don't have enough experience or you're, you're cutting weight when you're doing, I'm not saying that it's that it's less valuable to do it when you're just doing local meets or you're trying to make, you know, a national competition, but it's different stakes when you're trying to make the Olympics or you're trying to make world teams or you're trying to make it like there's different stakes in that situation where they're talking about stipends from USA weightlifting or sponsorship deals. And this is really like their career and their full-time thing. Um, I think there's some damage that can be done when not cutting weight for the right reasons or when you're cutting too much weight and you're not, 
you're not giving yourself the opportunity to really perform your best when you get on the competition floor. So I think sometimes people cut too early in their career, especially younger athletes, people who are teenagers. I definitely don't think they should be cutting weight. Just whatever you weigh, like that should be your weight class. And if you're two kilos over or a kilo over, and even if it feels like you could easily make weight, it's just sometimes more worth it to just get a couple competitions under your belt and then then consider, you know, some people do it just to be a little bit of a higher ranking when they're going from maybe, you know, I'm coming eighth at the American Open to sixth. And I wonder sometimes how much that's worth the the struggle and the stress and the restriction that comes with making weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's sometimes undervalued and people don't consider that a lot of times. That's probably the biggest one. The other things is... Um, that people people underestimate how much it's going to affect their performance on the platform and that can be really frustrating like i'm gonna you know i'm not why can't i hit prs i mean some people do really well i was somebody who it didn't really affect me that much to cut weight and i i actually preferred being lighter and i felt faster for some people, they get really, the restriction is really hard. It's, you have to be hungry and you might, it might not be able to eat the things you want to eat. It requires a lot of discipline to be able to make weight consistently over time. Let's talk about the opposite end of the spectrum, especially in the sport of weightlifting. But this is true in, in this can be true in any weight class sport and even in, in non-weight class sports, bulking. We saw the weight weightlifting body weight class restructuring a couple of years ago. A lot of athletes in the US and really internationally had this decision, especially on the women's side where there are these big gaps between Olympic weight classes now. A lot of these elite athletes have to decide, okay, do I do a significant cut or do I do a significant bulk? And you know, maybe that weight class in between where I'm sitting right now isn't going to be one that's contested at the Olympics or it's not going to be one where I am competitive. And we see a lot of elite athletes having to make that decision in their head, a lot of them choosing to go up one or two weight classes, sometimes even three. There are a couple examples out there. What are some of the common misconceptions about bulking that you think a lot of strength athletes have? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about like Maddie Rogers, for instance, mm-hmm. she, yeah. she almost didn't have a choice. Like you, you, she, nobody, nobody could have anticipated, um, Katie Nye and how amazing that she did. And they're in the same weight class. And she, if she wanted to go to the Olympics, she had to make a decision to go up weight class and to qualify. Um, I think when the biggest misconception that people make when gaining weight, this one's a little bit easier is one, Two of them, actually. One, you're not going to gain weight without gaining fat. So that's just not going to happen. There's going to be a certain percentage of the weight that you gain that will be body fat, especially if you're not an absolute beginner. There is a absolute beginners that have like lots of gains to make, meaning that you're putting multiple kilos on your lifts consistently. That means you're a beginner. When you get to intermediate or advanced weightlifting, you're putting like a kilo maybe three kilos a year sometimes on, on your list. You're just hoping for one kilo more. And that means that you're not going to be make, like building muscle mass at the same rate. And so if you're gaining, you're also going to be gaining a certain percentage of body fat. So I think people don't value that, like how that's going to affect you psychologically. Um, I think people gain weight in that scenario 
before they're like, they're, they're already at a body composition that they're not happy with. And then they choose to gain weight. So then now they've like added to the, they just feel worse. And you underestimate like how that actually can impact your weightlifting, Mm. how you feel, how your pants are cutting you off, how your belt feels on you when you're squatting or cleaning or that type of stuff. Um, and then people also underestimate how hard it is to be full all the time versus being hungry sometimes. I think it is significantly easier. And from experience working with lots of elite level athletes like uh, Cody Anderson, who's a small CrossFit Games athlete, and he needed to really try and gain weight to be competitive at the CrossFit Games. It is really hard to train really hard, like I feel for Maddie Rogers because it's really hard to train hard when you have to be full pretty much all the time. And the feeling of fullness, we can all relate to feeling like I want to go take a nap or I want to sit down and I just, I'm full and I don't want to go train my ass off when, when I've just eaten a huge meal. Those people, they, it's really hard to be full all the time. So I think sometimes people underestimate how hard it is actually to gain weight, whereas it's a little bit easier to deal with some hunger versus being full all the time. What about macronutrient breakdown when it comes to bulking? Because this is where I hear a lot of different things. I hear a lot of folks say, well, if you want to gain, I've heard in the past, and I'm not saying any of these are necessarily correct, but oh, if you want to gain weight, if you're bulking, you don't need to up your protein consumption. You just need to up your carbohydrate consumption, or you just need to update your uh, up, up your fat consumption, or you just need to update your generic, your general caloric consumption, which as we know, will generally lead to weight gain if you're in a caloric surplus for long enough, right? But when you advise athletes, particularly strength athletes, but it could be anyone who's in a bulk, are you modifying their macronutrient breakdown at all? Are you trying to get them in a particular range? Or is really at the end of the day, is it all about consuming more calories? I think the most important is consuming more calories. Like on, And that is simplifying things a lot. Like you're saying, in a general sense, you need to be consuming more calories than you're expending. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variables that come into play there that that it's not it's it can get confusing in the nitty gritty. But yes, calories matter. When I'm working with somebody, I'm also considering their prefer their food preferences. Mm-hmm. So if they need to have enough protein, especially in resistance training to be able to sustain like their recovery and muscle gain and all that type of stuff. Um, I think carbs and fat is a little, is significantly more variable and I definitely take into consideration their food preferences. So if I give somebody a significant amount of carbs and they don't like love eating rice and sweet potato or oats or that type of food, they're probably going to resort to, like Sour Patch Kids and ice cream and some more high sugar processed foods and their or their food options kind of go down because they'll they won't have any more fat left and then when you think of carb options that have no fat or protein it's generally not the more whole options um, and if people prefer fat over carbs I'll definitely swing the ratio that way. But I do think it's, it's easier to play around with carbs and fats. And it's always going to be individual to the person of how they feel, how training's going. It also depends for women, different times of their cycle, it might Mm -hmm. be impacted on like what, what they're feeling and how training's going and what they need. So 
I wish it, I wish it was super clear. Like you need this and you need that. It just, if it was that simple, I think there would be a lot more people out there that have tremendous results that we're just not seeing Mm -hmm. so consistently. You've, you, you've been an athlete and in involved in spring sports for it's, it's over a decade now, right? Do I have that? Do I have that correct? I mean, I've been involved in sports since I was two, but in strength sports, since I was 18, so over a decade, yeah. And and WAG, uh, working its gravity, is is almost six years old. Over the period of, it could be your strength athletics career or or your company's existence, what are some of the mindset changes or how has the perception of nutrition among strength athletes and the role nutrition plays changed, if at all? I think that people... I don't know. It's hard to know like what's actually changed and what is more I'm entrenched in this world and mm. what I notice more. Right. I'm around it more. So I'm just going to be honest about that. <laughs> I'd love to be like, I think people are caring about it more. I think they're paying attention to it more. But I do think that people were paying attention to it before. I mean, before I was doing this, people were doing zone and people people were paying attention. They, they, people have been paying attention to what they've eaten for a really long time. Right. Um, there's There's been tons of programs. Um, I think that more in my environment and the people that I'm around, there is more emphasis on how this actually fits your lifestyle and how, how can I perform at an elite level, but also not feel like I'm completely restricted in my social life, that it mentally impacts me so much that I can't perform. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I mean that that certainly that certainly makes a lot of sense. And look, the the best diet is one you'll you'll adhere to, or that's kind of conducive for your lifestyle instead of upending everything else. That's an adage we hear uh, quite often. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the genesis of working against gravity. And you say women make up about seventy percent of your clientele. The acronym WAG. Most people hear that if they aren't familiar with their, comp- their company and they think wives and girlfriends, right? Which you'll hear. Or they think the company that uh, you could babysit dogs or like take your dog for a walk. Oh, that's right. I, I don't know. Is your company, yeah. is, is your wag older than that wag though? Because that one's like a, that's like a, a new tech platform startup kind of thing, right? Yeah. I think ours might be a little bit older. You're right. Good, good. Yeah, you were the original <laughs> WAG. But but when I first heard of your company, WAG, I actually thought it was – Well, and I also remember one of your first very high-profile clients was Katrin David's daughter. And I remember thinking, oh, this is nutritional coaching for women, WAG, working against gravity, but it's also like wives and girlfriends. Haha, it's like a it's like a play on the acronym, which I'm not sure – was that intentional ever or was that something that's just kind of like – I mean the truth is that the name wasn't intentional. So if I could go back and I knew that this was going to become what it did, I wouldn't have named it working against gravity. I probably would have put something with the word nutrition in the title. Oh, okay. Or like it, you don't know what we do from the title. I had a project at school to create a, a, an e-portfolio and I made a blog instead and I called it working against gravity and that just became what it is. What okay? So, what are some other 
names that in hindsight, and I'm sure you've thought about this. Every entrepreneur who started a company has thought about this. I've thought about it for Barbend. Like if I didn't name it Barbend, what would I have named it? What are some of the names that you've tossed around in your head? If you can think of any where you're like, I would go back in time and I would change it. Barbend's a sweet name though. Like, thank thank you. (laughs) Barbend's a sweet name. You get what it's about. Like the people who know, know. It sounds good. It's short. Working against gravity is a mouthful. And the acronym is not clear. I mean, the meaning behind it, I think is nice. People create a lot of meaning behind what working against gravity means. You know, gravity is the force that we're always working against. And they just... I like that, but um, I would definitely have had either coach or nutrition or food or something in the title that is more clear, like what we actually do. When did you realize you were locked into the name? Like when, when were you like, oh God, I, I ha- like the ship sailed. We have to keep it like this and we're just going to have to make the rest of our branding speak for itself. I didn't even... I think at the beginning, it was just so overwhelming that we, I had like, okay, this is like a problem in front of me. I need to figure out how to solve it. And it was just one problem after another, just solving problems until, you know, we're, we're two years in and we have employees and I'm like, how can we change the name now? (laughs) Like, it's just too, it's too, we have a website that our website changed and it's just too much. Yeah, people what, already calling us Team Wag. Like once there was, maybe it was once people were using the hashtag Team Wag. I'm like, it's just too much. Yeah, once people are are using it spontaneously, they're and they're not like paid influencers, or you're not like asking your friends to use it. It's got a life of its own, and you're just like hitched along for the ride. So that makes a lot of <laughs> sense. What what has Wag not accomplished that you would like to see it do as a company? Hmm. Um. I would like to see WAG help like a hundred individuals have enough of a sustainable nutrition coaching business that they, that's what they do full time. That would be epic. Like a hundred people that are super passionate about health and fitness and nutrition. And we help support them to create a full-time job for themselves. That's, that's exactly like what our coaches do. It's online freedom of place and time, and they can just make such a bigger impact than if we can impact them and they impact their people. It's just our impact spreads wider. So we haven't done that. How many coaches do you support right now? So our working against gravity proper, we call it, we have 30 coaches Uh that work with us. And then we have helped just over 150 gyms, like affiliate, CrossFit affiliates, start nutrition businesses in their gym. And then we've put just over like 500 people through our coach certification. But those people have yet to be able to use our software to start their own businesses, which is going to happen this year. Um, and so that's, we've had five people, five of those people so far that are outside of gyms and our people. Right. Our staff. So you're you're five percent of the way there. Five out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're in the beta testing stage of the software, but so it's like very exciting. I like it. You've gotten to work with a lot of very big name athletes in the strength community. Is there anyone who you would like to work with, maybe who you haven't had the opportunity to interact with that directly? Oh, 
That's a good question. This is a good opportunity. Maybe they'll hear it and they'll reach out and they'll be like, work with me. You got to put it out there, right? You got to put it out into the universe. This is your, this is your chance. Okay. One person who I, it's not an athlete, but I'll just put it out in the universe because this is my chance. Um, Oprah would be super cool. (laughs) Although she's with Weight Watchers, I get it, but I would love to coach Oprah. I wouldn't, I would even do it. She doesn't even have to promote it. I just want to coach Oprah. I will say that I don't think this is the first time that Oprah's come up on the bar band podcast, which tells you how influential Oprah is. This is a strength sports podcast. And this is like the third time we've talked about Oprah. So what, just, just take that for what it is. Yeah. I love Oprah. Um, an athlete that I would love to work with, um, worked with I I I really had an amazing opportunity to work with a lot of my favorites. So I do think that that's that's cool. I I really wanted to work with Ronda Rousey for a long time when she was fighting, she's not fighting anymore, so I don't know if that counts, but that would have been really cool. Ronda Rousey She's a pro wrestler. She's still, that's still very athletic. That's still, yeah. that's still <laughs> a performance sport, even though it's a bit more <laughs> skewing entertainment, I guess. Yes. When she was in the UFC, I mean, I would totally love to work with her now. I think she's cool. Um, at the time, I, I would have loved to work with Ronda Rousey. Okay. So I'm going to just go in a completely different direction here. This is kind of the last okay. serious question I have. Okay. Nutritional fad or trend that you would just love to see die. Like you can snap your fingers, you can Thanos this, and you can wipe this one off the map completely, and you get to pick one. What is it? It's a, it could be a trend okay. or a diet or a fad. Okay. So generally, I don't know if you know this about me. You might know this about me. I don't really speak poorly on anything, like on any type of diet or any type of trend or anything like that. I have most of the time believed that if it nobody comes up with a nutrition program that doesn't work for anyone. Mm-hmm. And so it must have worked for someone. And so they're just trying to, you know, help out and they're just trying to do a good thing. And I just don't think it works for everyone, but if they're getting results then it probably worked for somebody. So that's how I generally feel about things. Um, that's why at WAG, we, we offer all sorts of nutrition programs. If you want to do keto, we can support you in that. If you want to do flexible dieting, if you just want to work on your relationship with food, we do all sorts of things. So that's just to caveat this. So if I had to choose something that I was like, I want it to be gone. I wish this wasn't out there. I'd probably choose diet pills. It just like, that's probably the thing, like the fad, like I'm going to take a diet pill and that's going to get me all my results that I want. Like actual, you know, like those diet, those pills, like people buy packs of pills and that's what they think is going to get them all the results that they need. Mm -hmm. There's no particular diet program that I'm like, Hey, even, I don't know, like, I think detoxes are worth it. Sometimes fasting is great. Sometimes those like extreme things, um, even the carnivore diet, people are getting results with that. Yeah. I generally not a good, like, I'm not great at telling people that I'm very neutral. Okay. (laughs) Well, you're Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah. There you go. You're you're just, you're just too polite to tell anyone off or even any, any like concept. You're too, you're too polite. But diet pills is like a pretty legit thing to be like, I feel like that should go. It's, 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 there are, I mean, there's certainly, we've actually done some content on Barbend about this. Like people assume diet pills do 
the work. Like diet pills might help with an extra like 50 to 100 calories maybe of like caloric usage or burn or helping you feel like fuller, but you can't just like eat like a pig or eat what you've been eating and assume significantly different results on that. It's like the last 1% thing if you're utilizing them at all. And like, even then that's kind of like a maybe. So, and then like think about how much food is 50 calories. It's very little. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you're not just going to take a diet pill and be like, Oh, I'm on a diet. You know, that's, that's not, it doesn't do the diet for you, right? It's not like, right. it's not doing most of the work. Um, Adi, what's the best place for people to stay up to date with what you're doing? The best place would be at Working Against Gravity or workingagainstgravity.com. Mm-hmm. That is the absolute best place. Signing up for our newsletter there. We give you all the updates on what we have going on. Um, and then I am at Adi Cashew on Instagram. It's really the only social media that I use, but that's where I'm at. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And always a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.